We are in a message series from the New Testament book of Acts, uh, which gives us a history of the earliest uh, Christianity. And the title of today's message is Gathering Expectations. You know, all of us, we're a bundle of expectations, are we not? Uh, we have expectations from our favorite Mexican restaurant. I know I do. We have expectations from our favorite tire store. You want to know a tire store I recommend? I'm happy to tell you that. We have expectations from the airline from whom, from which we bought, we purchased our ticket. And we have expectations spiritually. We have expectations from church. What should we expect from one another? What should we expect from ourselves in bringing something to the table? What should we expect from Jesus, who is the head of the church? And what should we expect from the overall environment for the long haul? What should our gatherings be like, for example? Should church be quiet or more upbeat? Should we dress up or come casually or just as you are? Now, I do think we can all agree that the ultimate purpose of our gatherings is to honor God and do so in the context of a healthy community. But we also have to admit that sometimes we can bring conflicting and even competing expectations to the table. So today, let's go to the Bible, Acts chapter 20, and I want to highlight five expectations of the church, of, the, of our gatherings, five gathering expectations. This is not an exhaustive list, but when you pursue these five, you know, you're off to a good start. Okay, Acts chapter 20 verse 7 says this, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. First couple of points I want to make come from this particular statement. So the first expectation that, that we bring to church life that God has for us is celebration, celebration. And let me put this verse of Scripture back up here, but this time with something underlined. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Now that phrase, first day of the week, implies that worship is done on Resurrection Day. For years, God's people worshiped on the Sabbath, seventh day of the week. But now in the early church, the worship experience, the gathering, is on Sunday, or to use their own terminology, the Lord's Day. And it was a day of celebrating our victory in Christ. It was a day of celebrating what Jesus has done for us, how he's conquered sin, he's conquered death, He's risen, He is reigning, and if He is for us, no one can be against us. And celebration is an appropriate response to all the wonderful goodnesses the Lord has brought our way. And you know, and you don't usually celebrate in quietness. Our family, for example, our physical family, this uh, lunchtime today, we're going to celebrate a couple of uh, recent birthdays in our family. We will not celebrate those birthdays with a moment of silence. There will be laughter, and there will be singing, and that's appropriate. The word celebrate appears 67 times in the Bible, and most of the time it refers to some sort of worship celebration. Let me just state this to you clearly. 
Celebrating the Lord is good for you. Praise is good for you. Because when you praise, when you bring a sacrifice of praise, you know what a sacrifice of praise is? I don't feel like it. And I can give you a list of 15 reasons why I don't want to praise. But when you bring a sacrifice of praise, you remind your own soul how big and good and wonderful and right and victorious and reigning the Lord is. It puts your problems in perspective. It puts your challenges in context. Psalm 95 says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Psalm 47, clap your hands, all you nations, and shout to God with cries of joy. Over the years, I've had people say to me from time to time, you know, really, Ronnie, I don't want to clap. That's so worldless. what the world does uh, in response to entertainment. I say, hey, believers had it first. They stole it from us. Celebration is such an important part of our gatherings. This is the first day of the week. We didn't just pick a day. Well, let's just do Tuesday. This is the Lord's Day. This is Resurrection Day. This means you serve a living God, a reigning God, and that puts every challenge you face in context and perspective. God is for you. He is with you. And He's the reigning King over your life. And He loves you and He cares. But here's a second expectation. It's reflection. Reflection. Again, Acts 20, verse 7, with a a different part of the verse underlined. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread, which is a term that is used for uh, both a love feast that believers would share, but also the Lord's Supper, communion. You remember what Jesus did on the Thursday before his uh, crucifixion. He inaugurated, he instituted the Lord's Supper, and he said, do this in remembrance of me. I offer myself as a sacrifice for your sins. And may I just remind you, everybody in this room needs a Savior. And you've not been, listen, modern culture just wants you to believe you've been saved from low self-esteem. You have been saved from the sting of death. You have been saved in Christ from eternal condemnation and separation from God. There, the gospel message, there's a reason the gospel message is offensive to people. It's bad news first that leads to the best news you will ever, ever hear and know and embrace. But listen, every time we take that bread and we drink that juice, it's a reminder that on the cross, the cross represents the absolute worst of you and me and the absolute best of God. And every time we come to communion, every time we come to worship, I I think about how good God has been to me, but also I want to re-up to Him. (laughs) And just say, Lord, I'm, I'm re-upping. 
I'm, I'm, I'm recommitting myself to you. I want to be your man, your instrument, your ambassador here. And sometimes that involves you know, reflection and repentance. Both celebration and reflection are right and good. They are both appropriate. Neither are wrong. And sometimes when we gather, there may be moments you can hear a pin drop. And there will be, be moments when my heart's heavy when I think about an apology I need to make or correction I need to make. And then there are times <laughs> I just shout for joy and love a song of praise and clap my hands unto the Lord. Gathering expectations, one is celebration. Another is reflection. Here's the third one, instruction. Instruction. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. And Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, get this now, he kept on talking, he kept on preaching until midnight. And you think I'm long-winded. And there were many lamps in that upstairs room where we were meeting. So that means it's getting warm. And seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. <laughs> hmm. You ever been in a church and uh, listening to a sermon and you fall into a deep sleep? Shake your head like this because I've seen it. All right. I have a really fun vantage point. I get to see so many fun things from, from up here. Hey, listen, don't, don't feel badly about it. If, if they can sleep on the Apostle Paul, you can certainly, you know, sleep, sleep on me, okay? Um, and so, this Eutychus is sinking, this young man, he's sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. And when he was sound asleep, get this, he fell to the ground from the third story. And he was picked up dead. Let me just remind you, though, the moral of the story so far, bad things happen when you sleep during sermons, okay? You're saying, no, Ronnie, <laughs> the real moral is bad things happen when you preach too long, okay? So there you go, uh, valid point. Sometimes it's hard not to, not to fall asleep. So this young man, he falls down dead. And Paul went down, verse 10, threw himself on the young man, Allah, Elijah, Elisha. And he put his arms around him, and he said, don't be alarmed, he's alive. And so the Apostle Paul, with his apostolic power, goes down, just wipes the dead off this kid. He's alive. And then he went upstairs again, broke bread and ate. And get this now, after talking until daylight, Paul left. So part one of his sermon was till midnight, Eutychus dies, raised to life again. They go back up. And Paul keeps preaching until daylight. Let that sink in for a moment. To Paul, the highlight of the evening was not this miracle resurrection. The highlight for him is that this church has gathered this young group of believers, and they need instruction. They need teaching in the way of truth. And he continues to teach and to instruct. And they were hungry. 
And the people took the young man home alive, and they were greatly comforted. By the way, I have an idea that during that uh, part two of Paul's sermon, the most attentive believer was probably that young man, Eutychus. Worship involves time to receive teaching and instruction. And it's important that we give the Word of God our attention because it's the sword of the Spirit and God has something to say to you. You say, well, I I just heard a, a, a sermon last week from Acts 20. Well, that was last week. You know, I was in another town and I heard a sermon from Acts 20. Last, that was last week. Holy Spirit's going to use it to nudge you this week in a particular way. You know, I joked a moment ago and I said bad things happen when you sleep during sermons. And in a sense, that's true. Spiritual inattention to the Word of God is lethal to your spiritual health. That's why the book of Hebrews will say this, boldly and pointedly, don't fall asleep, keep paying attention to what you've heard. Keep paying attention to it. And here at this church, you need to know, we hold up the Bible as not just important, but as authoritative. I believe the Bible is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. That's our view here. It's the view of our church leadership. That's not just, and we're not an outlier in that. There are millions of believers across the globe, and for years that's been a part of apostolic, historic, orthodox Christianity. And so what do I mean when I say that? Because the inspiration of Scripture is an absolutely vital theological issue. I mean, everything we know about the cross, about the resurrection, about the early church comes from the Bible. So can you trust the Bible? Because biblical Christianity rises or falls on the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. And what that means is the exact words of God were given to us. And it means the Bible is inerrant, without error. Now, it's not a science book. It's not a history book. It's not a geography book. But when it speaks to those subjects, it does so without error. If you rob the Bible of inerrancy, you remove the foundation of biblical Christianity. And may I just remind you of the attitude of Jesus himself towards some of the most outrageous things in the Bible. For example, the flood of Noah. Jesus endorsed that. Adam and Eve. Jesus believed in Adam and Eve. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah and their judgment, the response of Lot's wife. Jesus talked about that. The story of Jonah and the great fish. Jesus did and compared it to his resurrection. The story of the burning bush and God speaking from it. And if Jesus is God, and he is, wrapped in human flesh, and if that's the way Jesus honored the Bible, there's no wriggle room for us. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 22, that time the Sadducees, not the Pharisees, but the Sadducees were a group of people who did not believe in the resurrection. They did not. And so they come to Jesus trying to trick him. And here's their trick question. They said, so Jesus, here's a woman who's married to a guy. He dies. She marries another guy. He dies. 
he marries another. She marries another guy. He keeps going. She goes through seven men. And last of all, she dies. And here's their trick question. Okay, Jesus, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus said, first of all, you do not know the power of God because heaven is, un, is better than and unlike life here. So, but secondly, he says, you do not know the scriptures. And then he quotes from Exodus 3. Let me put this on the screen from Matthew 22. Jesus says, but about the resurrection of the dead... Have you not read what God said to you? Well, when did God say this to them? It's recorded in the Scriptures, Exodus chapter 3. And God said, I am, not I was or I used to be, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the living what I want you to see here is that Jesus based his entire theological defense on the verb tense from Scripture. That God breathed not just the words, but was very, very specific. And he says, have you not read? God said, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They may have been dead hundreds of years, but they are alive they are with me right now in heaven, reigning with me. I am. <laughs> Honor the Scriptures. Keep listening, reading, studying. It's the way to wisdom. It teaches us how to behave the blessed life how not to behave, how to avoid potholes, what not to believe and what to believe that leads to salvation by grace. All right. And so the early church, they celebrated, they reflected, they were instructed very quickly. Number four, another gathering expectation is that we have connection. That we have connection. And let me just encourage you to take advantage of opportunities for you and your family to continue to connect with one another. Whether it's in a group or a class, or maybe a group of men who get together early in the morning, whatever it might be, we can provide lots of opportunities, and we do that. But I invite you and urge you to take the risk, take the step, get out of maybe a comfort zone and, and be more and more connected with other believers. It's good for you, and it's good for them to be around you. And let me encourage you and urge you to make a declaration of interdependence. Not independence, but interdependence. And maybe a good first step is to stop by and visit with our folks out in the lobby today at Group Link. So here's a fifth expectation. The last one. Celebration. Reflection. Instruction. 
connection. They're assembling together. You know, the Bible says, whatever you do, don't get into the habit of forsaking the assembly. That's where you intentionally remove yourself from a place of blessing. And you don't want to willfully do that. And then last of all, though, protection. And this is a, a call to anyone who is a leader. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And to the shepherds of the church, he says this, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. In other words, the church doesn't belong to me, doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Jesus himself who bought it with his own blood. And he said, and you've got to be a shepherd. This is a role. This is an assignment. This is not an honorary title. And because you're a shepherd, there's a measure of authority there. Shepherds don't look around and say, hey, everybody, what do you want to do today? You direct. You lead. You have an aim. You have a vision. And shepherds in this church have to say, okay, you want to know what we believe? You, don't know, you want to know where we stand? Based on our understanding of Scripture, on the basis of what we know, on the basis of our experience, basis of our study, on the basis of what has been passed down for generations, here are our doctrinal statements. Here we stand. This is who we are. And he says this, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. And even from your own number, you cannot romanticize church life, he says. Even from your own number, men will arise, people will arise, and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard, shepherds. And remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Keep your eyes wide open. And then he says, verse 32, And so now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all the people. He says, keep your eyes open, protect the body, and you keep teaching, believing, preaching the truth, and protect that church. All right, I want to put some photos up here on the screen. Let me put the first photo up. That's a photo of an Italian shipwreck. The Costa Concordia happened back in January of 2012. It was a cruise ship sailing for the Costa Cruises, it capsized off the coast of Tuscany, and that accident caused 32 deaths. And the captain at the time was a man by the name of Francesco Scatino, who had worked for that cruise line for 11 years. Here's a photo of another accident. This one happened on January the 15th, 2009. U.S. Airways 1549 departed from New York's LaGuardia Airport, headed to uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. After takeoff at a very vulnerable stage, the plane struck a large flock of birds, and both engines, both engines were incapacitated, and the captain of that uh, flight, uh, Captain Sullenberger, 
he was forced to land in the Hudson River with 155 passengers. But he called upon his own experience. He'd been a glider pilot. And he safely landed that 67-ton airliner in the middle of the Hudson River, and all 155 passengers and crew survived that uh, frightening, frightening ordeal. Uh, he said that he, he separated what was going on. He had things happening that were beyond his control. This is beyond my control. But here are some things within my control. What, how can I react? What can I do? Here's the photo of the Concordia captain. He, uh, in charge of that ship, he decided to deviate a little bit. He hit a rock mass underwater. And when his ship was mortally wounded, you know what he did? He bailed. He was one of the first off. He was convicted in 2016 to 16 years in prison for manslaughter, causing a shipwreck, and abandoning his passengers during the accident. And now let me put a photo up of Captain Sully, who was so highly respected and admired and made a movie about him. In fact, you're probably thinking, I thought he looked more like Tom Hanks. <laughs> he had that crippled A320 airliner, and he landed that bad boy safely. Everybody got off, and you know who the last person off was, don't you? Yeah, Sully. Shepherd, church leader small group leader, Bible class teacher, fathers, mothers, leaders in your home. Don't be Francesco Scatino. You want to be a spiritual version of Captain Sully. I'll protect my family. Protect my group. Protect our church. Because even though it sort of belongs to us, it ultimately belongs to Jesus. My friends, it is a great privilege to be a part in the kingdom of God. It's a great privilege to be a part of God's church. And let me just invite you in a fresh way, maybe to come out of the shadows and to re-engage to use your gifts, your abilities in a catalytic way, in a positive way, to move the needle forward, to move the ball forward. Nothing beats being used by God for His purposes.